0: two mats that's the number 2 m a t t s and there's a link in the show notes
1: there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wegovy and zepbound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you
0: Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European podcast. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you enjoy what we do, there's really no better way to support us than to subscribe. To make that decision easier for you, here is a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers to the New European can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week, Or you can purchase a year subscription to the print and digital package for just £2 a week. If you get the print and digital package, you will have unlimited digital access and our award winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year for just £2 a week. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid readers, and it really is a growing community now, subscribe at the new European co.uk slash tne podcast that's the new european.co.uk slash tne podcast thinking heavily drinking heavily sighing heavily crying heavily all things you may have got penciled in for june the 23rd 2022 the sixth anniversary of the referendum that took britain out of the european union that anniversary is coming up next week, and on this podcast we'll be discussing how you will be marking a day to forget. I'll be talking to the editor and the journalist John Kampner about Boris Johnson's plans to re Brexit in order to win back some support from his base. And John will be talking about how Europe plans to deal with uh, Boris Johnson and his machinations. As ever, more malevolent ministers blowhard backbenchers will go into our hall of shame. So June the 23rd looms. Always a strange time of year for those of our persuasion, isn't it? I've been reflecting that without the events of June the 23rd, 2016, I probably wouldn't be talking to thousands of you now. And the New European probably wouldn't exist. That's the upside. Downside? Mm, decades of shame. Decades of economic decline. Power in the hands of liars and bigots and brain-dead ideologues the reduction of Britain from an open, forward-looking state into a barricaded island, forever looking backwards to the past. But, you know, blue passports. Arthur Smith, who is a drummer rather than the fine comedian, has my sympathies. He wrote in uh, and said, June 23rd is my birthday, forever ruined by Cameron, Farage, Johnson et al. with their stupid referendum. Uh, It's an eternal, lifelong reminder. Sorry to hear that, Arthur. So what are the rest of you planning for June the 23rd? You can email in or you can get us on Twitter. We'll give all that out at the end. Uh, But listeners of this podcast uh, have already been, been telling us what they've got planned. Lynn Atkinson says, I might go on a unicorn hunt. Mexico 864 says, I've got two nights booked in the sunlight uplands. Chops of Alec says, I will mark it by playing Ode to Joy, loud. Mike Crisp says, I will go into the field next to my house and let out six piercing screams. Meanwhile, Vivian Tufnell says, I will mark June the 23rd with quiet despair. Steve Reed is a man after my own heart with a very large vodka tonic to numb the anger. Tim Schofield, I will mark it, by voting to take back one of the red wall seats from the Tories. And Jim Forbes Ritter, also of that persuasion, says watching at least one blue seat change colour in the by-elections. Mark West is rubbing it in. He says on June the 23rd, I'll be celebrating the granting of my EU passport and Jake Matchett too. He says on June the 23rd, I will take out and admire my French identity card and passport. Vaila Smith says that on June the 23rd, I will be campaigning for Scottish independence. Carol Rafferty, I think, is in Scotland too, and she says she will mark June the 23rd by singing the fine song, Sunshine on Leith, by the Proclaimers. The lyrics uh, that she writes here uh, are very apposite. My heart was broken. Sorrow, 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 sorrow. Now, before we go to John Kampfner, a reminder of another brilliant podcast from the New European. This is MRC, Guinea MRC, Guinea MRC. Fifteen men overboard, approximately fifteen men overboard. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help, over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learned more about the people who died, men, women, and a young child. But their stories were soon eclipsed first there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths then the story faded away to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic the new european has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished where did they come from why did they leave what drew them to britain and why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close In this three-part series, we tell their stories, because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system
1: that's so inhumane?
0: The whole series of the 27 is now available to stream or to download in the same new European feed where you found this episode. What's behind all the protocol posturing? Is it a desire to uh, make things better for the people in Northern Ireland? Or is a, as a headline in issue 296 of the New European suggests, is it a case of Boris Johnson making war with Europe to save his own skin? To discuss, it's the author of that excellent piece, Friend of the New European, the writer John Kampfner. John, welcome back. Hi there, Steve. I tell you what, before we dig into all of this uh, and your piece, let's just go over a question that the listeners have been answering this week ahead of next week. So on the sixth anniversary of the, the referendum, June the 23rd, 2022,
1: what will you be doing and what will you be feeling? Goodness, to be honest, it's crept up on me and I'd completely um, forgotten about it. Um, and I suppose any sensible person will be sort of hiding in a sort of basement and up yes. in ashes or, or, or getting themselves paralytically drunk. Actually, what I'll be doing on the 23rd and 24th is a bit of a plug because I'm now um, running a programme at Chatham House, the think tank, which is designed to look at the UK's role in the world now. It's not, you know, I'm trying really hard to keep my head above the water and not do a permanent commentary on the stuff that's going on now because, you know, we know what's going on now and trying to sort of work out what in 2030, which will be 14 years after the re- referendum, what will this country look like? Hopefully by that point, we'll have moved on from the clown, but you never know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one challenge I think there is for people uh the millions out there and i would say the 99.9 percent of people who read the new european who are despondent not just at the referendum not just at the fact of brexit but at at the everything that has come before during and after it is that we've also got a responsibility to think well we can't just complain all the time we've got to try to help in whatever way we can to forge a better path for this country, because, you know, the Brexit memory doesn't fade. I don't feel any less cross about it now than I did when it happened. But with that, you can't just spend your whole time harumphing. You've got to think, well, now what do we do?
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And maybe there are some movements towards that. Um, how are you, I mean you spend a lot of time in Berlin you spend a lot of time in, in, in mainland Europe generally is Britain less important now in people's I mean it's obviously less important because it's not a member of the EU it's less important in Brussels but is it is it less of a factor in people's thinking when you when you talk to people in Paris
1: and Berlin Rome I mean there's a lot of factors to consider on that I mean Brexit I've always said was never the cause of anything it was the symptom of a lot of things that were going on. Of course, it made things dramatically worse on a number of fronts, but there have been a lot of long-term trends. I think one of Tony Blair's single worst decisions, uh, not quite as bad as uh, the war in Iraq, was to allow uh, that the learning of a foreign language in schools was no longer compulsory. Uh, and that might seem a bit sort of, why is he talking about that? Well, actually, this all forms part of a piece of Britain feeling emotionally, socially, psychologically more and more distanced from Europe and more of a sort of sense of an island nation with all the delusions of grandeur that that comes part of that. And, you know, every time, you know, even before Brexit, I was in Europe. I just felt so much part of a wider canvas, you know, whether you're in France, Germany, Italy, Spain, whatever, you were also part of Europe. And that is, you know, with every year that that happens and with every... Um, cohort of people born and children who go through schools who no longer not only no longer feel part of Europe but are no longer part of the Europe or at least the European Union that problem is going to only get worse so emotionally and psychologically we're less there are far far fewer school groups Um, that's partly because of you know the crazy restrictions that that we have imposed Uh, The ending of Erasmus makes university exchanges, a lot of our harder. scientific exchanges through Horizon. Um, All these things have made just the general interaction of um, uh, Brits and Europeans that much harder. And of course, over time, we become less and less relevant. We become less and less part of things. It affects us more than it affects them, because we are one and they are 27. Um, uh, but it is part of, of a longer term trend of, you know, we are just an offshore nation and there's, there's no reason why we can't have good relations. I mean, you know, somebody from the Netherlands was saying, well, look, we have really good relations with Canada. Why can't we have good relations with, with Britain? And that is obviously the hope, but it's going to be hopefully an improved relationship, but still one from a greater distance. What do
0: you think the, the reaction was among European heads of state and, and among government officials when they heard the result of the vote of
1: confidence the other week? I don't think it um, affected them very much, if truth be told. I think um, they have long since insulated themselves from worrying about the longevity of Boris Johnson I think they factored it in. Um, I I personally have, uh, I know it's a bit glib, uh, but I've I've, I've long held to the view that you get the politicians you deserve and you get (laughs) the leaders you deserve. Um, And, you know, this isn't, you know, by way of digressing, this isn't Putin's war, this is Russia's war. Um, And, you know, this isn't, you know, Johnson's Britain, this is Britain that has put Johnson in place. And I think we need to be much tougher on ourselves. Um, you know, when looking at that. But no, I mean, to go back to your question, they just think he's there. And and, and to be honest, it's it's what all governments and diplomats do. You can't choose the governments that you have to work with. You just have to work with what you've got. And they've got a Britain that is sort of luxuriating in mayhem and destruction um, and disruption. They know that for as long as Johnson is around and possibly if he's replaced by one or two of the other contenders, this will not change. And they just have to, you know, bite their lips and and gird their loins and just deal with us. But it's it's not a pleasurable experience for them.
0: I mean, you say in this piece that one of the reasons that European politicians, European diplomats find dealing with Boris Johnson and the things he does so difficult is because their own country would never have had a Boris Johnson, they wouldn't have elected a Boris Johnson. Why is that?
1: Not only would they have not elected Boris a Boris Johnson, they wouldn't Even if they had had a referendum on leaving the EU, I mean, they always, you know, particularly Germans and and the Northern Europeans and the Dutch, they always scratch their heads. And they always ask this question, how on earth can you have a referendum in which you have ostentatiously made no preparations for one of the two outcomes? Um, You know, one of the outcomes is status quo. Well, you don't have to do anything much about that. The other is a big change and you've made no preparations. It happens. And then you go, oh, my God, what do we do next? And that is not the mark of a serious country. So this, this sense of Britain not being serious, of not being long-termist, of lurching from one crisis, often of its own making, to another, as I say, has been baked in now for, for a long time. And pretty much anything the Brits say or do now, there's always a, an intake of breath thinking, A, have they thought this through? B, are they serious? C, are they lying? You know? Um, and D, can we trust them? The answer, the fourth one, is always no.
0: And I guess the, the I guess the, the, the game plan for Boris Johnson is, is pretty much baked in as well, isn't it? I mean, what is that? What is that game plan, do you think? What's driving it? What are the assumptions that he's making about the things that he does?
1: Well, in domestic political terms, the result I mean the result of the no confidence vote was so um, frustrating on every count because it was quite, you know, it wasn't particularly close. You know, it's still a reasonable majority of Conservative MPs in their great wisdom decided to keep him. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet it wasn't decisive enough for him to feel, right, it's time to move on. He's got only a certain portion of the party behind him, and that bit uh, that he feels he needs to curry favour with is the, is the right and the far right and, and the ERG. So in domestic policy and in foreign policy, that is what we're going to see. So we've got the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, which he called you know, a trivial piece of bureaucratic fixing, which is um, amusing to say the least because it's, it's, it's regarded as seismic on, on every front. Um, now we've got the Rwanda, Priti Patel, yes. or empty planes that don't quite take off these all fall into the classic political wedge theory where you create battles. Um, It doesn't really matter what the outcome is. And actually, quite often, it's better to lose than to win because then you can create this sense of encirclement. Um, It's a sort of Putin type of politics. It's an Erdogan type of politics in Turkey, which we have here. It's just this sort of state of permanent discontent that somehow the purity of British life is being sullied by Johnny Foreigner and that is done to paper over the cracks of a body politic that is deeply corroded. And on the economic front, we've got, you know, the lowest growth in the G7, the second lowest growth in the OECD, only better than Russia. And these things are simply uh, created, rows are created to try to divert attention with kind of modest success.
0: Yes, because there is an awful lot going going on out there isn't there and I wonder whether you know i mean i can see i think that the analysis is absolutely right you know it 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 forces he forces labor to talk about something that they don't really want to talk about that, uh, you know, they, they bring the European Court of Justice and in the Rwanda case, the, the European Court of Human Rights into, into play, which is something that they they think is is good. I just wonder whether being nasty to the Europeans and moaning about these things, especially in this time, as you've just said, is, is such a vote winner as it was in 2016 and, and even 2019. What do you think?
1: that's that's a That's a really good question, Steve. I mean the pollsters will will give you the answer to that better than I can. I would venture that it continues to be an asset within those areas that you that Johnson is identifying uh not a complete asset, not as nearly as strong an asset as it as it used to be. It was never obviously an asset among his political adversaries and the people who wouldn't vote for him, but you know they're never factored into. Um, any of this is probably enough of it um, to he feels worth the world but you know the other point is he's got nothing else mm. you know he does these housing wheezes he does these economic wheezes um, and none of them work the one thing you know and and even critics of him such as myself have to acknowledge is that in the early stages of the response to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he has been much more adept and much more agile and determined to help Ukraine than other European leaders have, specifically Olaf Scholz in Germany and Emmanuel Macron in France. And for pro-Europeans and Germanophiles like myself, that's painful But we have to acknowledge that. Now, what the Brexiteers and Johnson tried to show is, well, it's only by leaving the European Union that we've been able to do it. Well, the answer is, that's frankly, that's just nonsense because none of the coordination of response to the EU, uh, to the invasion, the, the European Union and the Commission was important, but any country could have done what it liked. And at the moment, all European countries are pretty much doing what they like and they could have added... Uh, They could have increased their support for them, whether inside or outside the EU. But just imagine a Britain that was confident, that was collaborative, that was in the heart of the EU, but also showing more courage than other countries. Wouldn't we be riding high all over the place now?
0: Well, you would be leading the EU in a, t- yeah. a time where the, the, you know, the, the Merkel has departed the stage and it's unsure you know, what power Macron going to have by the end of next week. So. And
1: exercising influence on yes, the exactly. two big powers, France and Germany. And at the moment, we have zero.
0: Now, Boris Johnson is, of course, a liar but when he says what he's proposing on northern ireland is trivial is he right and and when maros Sefcovic says that his bill has got no legal and political justification whatsoever and then he adds let's call the spade a spade this is illegal is there genuine anger and outrage there or is this all a bit performative are we are we sure it won't bring concessions
1: out of the eu i mean it's absolutely not trivial both in the practical details, but also in the fact which isn't new, but of a an established country willfully and willingly breaking international law. You sign something, you sign something not under duress, but willingly you enter into, you know, I mean, just think of any company, any organisation, you sign into a contractual agreement, then you say, oh, I don't really like the agreement, I'm going to break it up. Well, you know, then you go into litigation. So, I mean... Um, so the, the, the lack of legality, even though they've tried to cherry pick um, and, and the established lawyers in, in number 10 and Treasury and Foreign Office has been sidelined so they can find some Looney Tunes lawyers who can give them the... Um, judgment that they are looking for it's not complicated I imagine I'm not a lawyer it's not complicated in law that if you sign a contract and you don't abide by it well you know you're in breach Um, now to will um, the EU try to cut some sort of deal I mean you know they often their bark is often worse than their bite um, when it comes to that Um, I hope they don't I mean, I say that with great sadness because the only people who lose will be ordinary people because there will be some form of trade sanctions. And at a time when we should be all united in the face of an existential adversary in the face of Vladimir Putin, we are creating um, a really debilitating trade war which, which spills over into all other areas of collaboration just at the very worst time.
0: And part of this is... It's part of a, a chaotic approach, isn't it? An, an, an organized, organized chaos within um, within uh, Downing Street and within this regime uh, that Boris Johnson uh, has decided, you know, will will get results. He's, he, and it's not just that he's sort of wildly chaotic himself; he's like some deranged version of Bagpuss. All his friends are now have to be wildly chaotic as well. And, and you, you write, and this is a brilliant phrase about how. The Foreign Office is superimposing a method on the Brexit madness. How, how does that manifest itself in the in the Foreign Office, and what is the thinking behind that?
1: So the argument, which has been hugely reinforced by Ukraine, which has yes. given them giving them this lever, is this that yeah Brexit Brexit caused mayhem. It caused disruption, um, and now instead of apologising for the mayhem and disruption and trying to find ways of overcoming it. What you do is you embrace it and you turn it into official policy. And the idea is this, that international institutions are clunky. They don't get things done, um, whether that's the WHO on the pandemic or the World Trade Organization or, um, you know, other bodies, you know, it's all slow and you you might as well fall asleep when you're going around a room listening to interventions for two days and nothing gets done. And there's an element of truth. In that. Then you add into the fact that international institutions and the way they were formed in 1945, such as the United Nations Security Council and the Permanent Five uh, nuclear powers, so it's now completely gridlocked because Russia and China will block anything that it that they don't like, and therefore nothing can get done. Um, the G20, which was seen as the future, which includes authoritarian states, so now they all there's basically a, a clash of civilization stuff between. Liberal democracy and the authoritarians, and there's very little common language there. So then you just have groups that mutually reinforce each other, such as NATO and, and the G7. So in other words, all the institutions are either weak or moribund. So what you do is you create um, ad hoc alliances, coalitions of the willing. Minilateralism is the word of the moment, and you make it up as you go along, and you. And you're quite open about making it up as you go along. And you say that's a virtue in itself because everything else, everything a bit more deliberative and longer term is now regarded as not working. And, you know, what's interesting about this is that there's an element of truth in it. There is probably like a 10 or 20%, you know, oh my God, you sit in some United Nations body for two or three days, you hear everybody pontificating, nothing gets done. Uh, you know, millions are are misspent, and and the whole thing is a complete waste of space. And people won't agree anyway. You might as well go it alone. That there is an element of 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 truth in that, but you know, any sensible government will try to work with institutions where it can, and will only in extremists go its own way. But in Britain now, it's a sort of almost embracing this new post modern free for all. The Uber of foreign policy is a tremendous, uh, t- <laughs>
0: tremendous... Yeah, energy.
1: and, you know, I mean, you know, probably, I probably don't know how many of your listeners and readers regard Uber as sort of, you know, a terrible thing and an immoral thing and, and all kinds of things. Uh, and, you know, it, it, is, it is that, but I, I use Uber. So, you know, I mean, that's the interesting thing that sometimes with disruption, and the whole tech revolution has been based on disruption, um, and so it's a really interesting debate that, you know, the world is, you know, is is everything happening in Britain now because Britain is changing or the world is changing? And you know, I'm not advocating any of this, but to just... Um, dismiss it all out of hand would be a little bit myopic because there has been something and um, there's a very good column in the ft which i mentioned by the columnist janan ganesh who basically said is there a role for primitivism his word in foreign policy in other words kind of uncouth leaders like johnson you know do they in certain situations very specific situations like ukraine get it done in a way that more kind of conventional leaders don't.
0: Yes, I mean it was. There were Donald Trump, of course, claimed various foreign policy victories, didn't he? China, mm. um, North Korea. It's hard to see, you know, what any of those really meant now. But obviously, it's it's it is a little. Well, it's it's more patently obvious in when you see the reaction of people like Zelensky to to Boris Johnson. Um, let's just uh, let's just wind up then. So, I mean. Johnson does need to need a good few months to to fight off any sort of leadership challenge. I, I'm guessing what what does a good summer and autumn for him look like, and and then. How do you feel about it? Because, of course, right coming up, we've got the anniversary next week. But on that day, we've got the two by elections, uh, which the Conservatives are expected to lose badly. There's a Commons committee investigating whether he broke the ministerial code. There are lots of other rumours bubbling around that which you know about. And of course, this cost of living crisis is—is is he safe? And 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 what does he need to to do over the next uh, few weeks to to sort of claw this, keep clawing this back?
1: To let listeners into a a dark, internal new European secret, I've got a running bet with one of your colleagues. Um, I'm absolutely convinced that Johnson will be the Tory leader at the time of the next general election. Um, He's survived. I mean, you know, to have survived all of this, to be found to have broken the law by the police, Sue Gray's report, everything else happening. He'll lose these two by-elections big time, but actually loads of sitting prime ministers who lose by-elections big time. Um, the, the parliamentary committee, as you say, looking into it. All of this will happen. And he will just brush everything blithely off and, you know, keep calm and carry on. And I, you know, eventually, I mean, everything comes to an end in the end but I have absolutely no reason to think, you know, and I desperately, I really hope I'm wrong, I'm really happy to lose my bet, <laughs> desperately, you know, but I, I have no reason to think that anybody or anything will dislodge Johnson anytime soon. So I think in his sort of swaggery way, he's probably quite relaxed.
0: Oh, dear. That doesn't make me feel very relaxed. Now, Thank there's a thought so for
1: a sunny day. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for depressing us all to so John Kampner. So read John on Boris Johnson's Phony War with the EU. Subscribe at the slash TNE podcast. Before we go to the Hall of Shame, a couple more things that listeners will be doing to mark June the 23rd. Bill Eason says, after the referendum, I emigrated to Spain in order to get away from broken Britain. 23rd of June is El Noche de San Juan, uh, when people across Spain celebrate the year gone by and make their wishes for the year to come. I will be celebrating the wonderful life that I have in Spain and hoping that in the coming year, the people whom I left behind in Scotland have the cojones to vote to leave the UK and rejoin the wonderful family of European nations. And Sue Wilson, who uh, uh, runs a, a Brexit support group in Spain, Uh, She writes, here in Spain, we celebrate the eve of San Juan, uh, St John, by jumping the waves at midnight to mark a fresh start. We also burn things that we want to get rid of uh, on bonfires on the beach. Usually, these are photos of the X, etc. One year, I burned vote leave signs. Well, thanks for all of those. And whatever you do on June 23rd, please do make the time, whether you're crying or drinking or both, to buy a copy of the New European, it's a Brexit anniversary special pact with great writing and analysis and also to listen to the next episode of this podcast when I suspect the issue of Brexit might just come up. And talking of Brexit, a quick reminder that series one and two of Charlie's Connolly's Great European Lives podcasts are available now. They tell the life stories of remarkable Europeans in short 10-minute bites, and you can find them where you got this podcast. Just search for the Great European Lives podcast. So finally, it's time for the Hall of Shame, where we put blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers, putrid pundits, things that get my goat generally. Suella Braverman is in the Hall of Shame, Uh, She was on Robert Peston's show the other night, and she said uh, that one of the reasons the Northern Ireland protocol had to change was because the Northern Ireland economy is lagging behind the rest of the UK. And it's not true. Uh, In fact, the latest regional growth data uh, suggests the Northern Ireland economy expanded by 1.4% quarter on quarter Uh, In quarter three of last year, that compares to growth of 0.9% from Scotland, 0.6% from England. That's largely because of big growth in London, uh, while growth in Wales contracted by 0.3%. So uh, far outstripping uh, the rest of the UK, Northern Ireland. But, you know, never mind. So Ella Braverman can't be expected to tell the truth. She's only the Attorney General, the senior advisor to the government who tells them what is legal and what is not. Jonathan Gullis is in the Hall of Shame. He's the Stoke-on-Trent Tory MP you may have seen uh, on TV recently defending Boris Johnson for just about everything. Uh, This week, Jonathan Gullis said uh, that the UK needs to free itself from the European Court of Human Rights over the Rwanda flights. He wrote, the ECHR has no place in the UK judicial system. The government needs to free itself from it entirely. Uh, And after a while, he edited those two sentences and they now read the ECHR's role in UK law needs looking at urgently. Why did why did Jonathan Gullis do that? Why did he row back on that? Uh, It's because somebody pointed out to him that the Good Friday Agreement, uh, which obviously governs uh, what happens between Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, requires Britain To adhere to the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, But never mind, Jonathan Gullis can't be expected to know obscure things like that because he's only a Northern Ireland minister in the worst government that's ever been. And Whiddicombe is in the Hall of Shame as always. She was complaining this week that Britons now have no freedom of speech. Uh, And Whiddicombe expressed that view freely on national television on the Jeremy Vine Show. She's also expressed similar views freely uh, on GB News, and she's expressed similar views uh, freely uh, in her own newspaper column in the terrible Daily Express, but no, no freedom of speech in Britain there. But this week's most shameful in the Hall of Shame is Liz Truss, who explained on Radio 4's Today programme why we should not have another think about sending refugees to Africa. That would be wrong, she said. Let's not Let's not even think about it. It would be wrong because she said, we need to follow through on this agreement that we've signed with Rwanda. Well, just a thought, but what about following through on the agreement that we signed with the EU in 2019? That was the New European podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to our producer, Eleanor Longman-Rood. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the theneweuropean.co.uk, slash TNE podcast. You can join us for the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. That is at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European podcast, please subscribe. Oh, you can give us nice ratings and lovely reviews where you can too. On social, you can join our Facebook readers group or follow at the New European on Twitter, and you can follow me on Twitter too at Sanglesey. S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. It would be lovely to see you. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes.